Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. I dare say that most of us would love the opportunity to rewrite a story or a movie of our choosing. This past weekend, my family and I watched the latest version of West Side Story. And without spoiling the ending, I'll just say this. I'd very much like to rewrite the ending of that story. And I suspect that y'all might too. If not a movie or a story, perhaps a ball game. How many of you all would like to redo the last say, two minutes of a basketball game, or the last quarter, how about the last inning, or last at bat? Well, as it turns out, especially regarding stories and movies and TV shows, there's this thing called fan fiction. I wasn't particularly familiar with it until several years ago, but there's this whole trove of fantasy online that you can find where people have been, let's say, dissatisfied with the stories in a a TV show or a movie. So they would go in, individuals, and provide their own endings, their own spin-offs. Spend a little bit more time with this relationship here. Or perhaps choosing to have that battleship cruiser do something different than it did on the big screen. Recently, When the creators of a popular movie were asked why they didn't go with an alternative ending that would have made things a little bit sweeter, the creators thought about it and then they said, we didn't change the ending because, well, it wouldn't be true. This segment of Paul's letter is equal parts testimony and instruction. So if anyone is in Christ, Paul says, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. In Jesus, we are changed from what we've become to what God has created us to be. So we can imagine that this idea of what's Old is our past lives, perhaps. The seasons of our lives we'd rather erase. The things about us that we are not proud of or fond of. Maybe that's what Paul's talking about in everything old. Now, I got to tell you, Paul, Paul knows what he's talking about here. Well, I mean, Saul. We forget that When we talk about Paul, we may be quick to forget that he was but a very different person. Saul, you remember him, don't you? Image of an individual that's painted in verses and in phrases that actually say a whole lot more than we want to give it credit for. Saul was self-righteous, learned a place of privilege he occupied, as well as influence. And he used all of that to tear down 
the new Jesus movement. He was a right-wing extremist. He was a religious fundamentalist who dialed up violence as an appropriate way to deal with differences. You may recall that Saul was there and witnessed Stephen being stoned and, quote, approved of his killing. Acts 8.3 says that Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women, throwing them into prison. Saul was undoubtedly a villain in the story that we share about God's work in the world. Saul was the one breaking up homes and families, approving of cold-blooded murder, of plotting to disrupt God's work in the world and doing so with a malicious grin on his face. Yeah, that guy, Saul. But in Christ, Saul becomes a new person and he receives a new name, Paul That's right, Saul was on his way to round up more Christians. He was on the road. Jesus himself shows up. I love it. It's not just one of Jesus' own ambassadors. No, Jesus himself has to come down and say, what are you doing? Stop it. Meets him on the road. I mean, it's the original little talk with Jesus. Without Jesus, there'd be nothing. There'd be no Paul. There'd be no new creation. Only the villain. Only Saul. And consequently, y'all, if you play this out a little further, we wouldn't know about Jesus ourselves without Paul's transformation. And all this points to one singular fact, that without God's steadfast, unconditional, agape love, we'd have no Jesus. All this, Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled himself to us through Christ. This is one of those moments when I read scripture that you kind of tune out. You're not in precisely certain what Paul is saying. And so we kind of just keep reading to get through it. I'm sure I'm the only one that does that. But I spent a few moments with this idea of reconciliation. And the best that I can imagine is that reconciliation means not counting our sins against us. I like that. I mean, that'll preach, won't it? The way that we are in a right relationship with God is through Jesus, his son. And what's interesting here about this this image of reconciliation, this diplomacy here amongst us, is that Paul's words have a distinctly emotional and relational component. It really is the sense that two enemies have become friends. That is what God is doing in the work of Jesus. Let me see if I can put it a little bit more plainly. God sends Jesus to us because he cannot stand for us to be disconnected from him. If God's original intention was the garden, 
Think Genesis 1 and 2. The, the garden that God creates for his creation, Adam and Eve. If God's intention for us was to walk in the cool of the day with his creation, then Jesus represents the last best-ditch effort for that to happen again. Jesus makes it possible for us to walk humbly with God just as he had hoped would happen with Adam and Eve. This is what God desires above all. Union with his creation. I know, it's, <laughs> it sounds like fan fiction, doesn't it? It sounds unbelievable. It sounds like what we would wish would happen We've convinced ourselves that God is so hell-bent on justice that we can't walk with God until God first exacts vengeance on us. Then the only way for us to be able to be in this right relationship with God is if in some way he smites us. I mean, that's what's going on in our head, right? That's what the revivalist preacher from out of town used to tell us and make us sweat in the pews or in the folding chairs down by the river. And that's precisely why Jesus tells us this story. It's a story of a man. He has two sons. They work on the farm together and one of them comes up to the father and says, drop dead but short of that let's just act like you're dead give me my part of the inheritance and unbelievably the father this is ludicrous obliges and gives him half of what he is owed the other half to the other son of course we know that the older son chooses to stay he's part of the family he's working the farm but not the young man he takes his inheritance and he goes to a far off place he remakes himself. He lives into all of his desires and unsurprisingly loses all of his money. He's desperate. He's hurting. He has to take a job that would have been an abomination in his local community for someone of his household to do what he's doing. And then Jesus tells us about the story that he comes to his senses. What a fascinating turn of the phrase. It suggests that the prodigal, that's somebody that spins lavishly, that this runaway is still plotting. We don't know if he's sincere or not. What he does know is that his lot will be better off even if he goes and acts as a slave and a servant to his father's household. So he wonders, well, maybe if I say this, I can have a place to lay my head. So he chooses to do so. He goes home, and even while he's a far way off, the father sees him, runs out to him, hugs him, and kisses him before the son can say his prearranged confession. He says it, but the father doesn't seem to care. Instead, he calls for a servant who comes in, and he gets these orders. I want the ring, the robe, the sandals, the feast for my son who once was dead. He's alive again. Once was old, is now new. Let's rejoice. Let's throw a party. And they began to celebrate. 
beautiful story. It's a story that shows us about a father, a God, who wants and desires reconciliation above all else. I mean, that's what half the story is about. About how even though the son was still a far way, far piece off, that the father was able to see him and he runs to him. He embraces him and he kisses him. The father is so excited about being reunited with his son. He doesn't seem to care about the confession. And he begins to, to make plans to reinstate him to his previous place in the family. This is what God looks like, y'all. His love for those who are apart from his household, his kingdom, it's so great that he'll run to us if we but just turn our faces homeward bound. I mean, in Jesus, we have a desperate God, a God who has done everything to be with his creation. God gives Adam and Eve just enough rope for them to hang themselves. Choice! And in doing so, expulsion, distance, dislocation, disconnection. God does everything to bring his people back to him. And so in Jesus, we have this father that's running out to us because this is the last thing that he can imagine doing. I will come to you. I will come myself so that we can be together. So now that you and uh, we have been reconciled to God, we're to be about the work of reconciliation ourselves. Paul even goes so far as to call us ambassadors for Christ with this message for the world, and that is to be reconciled to God. This is outstanding. It's, it's clear as crystal. God wants a right relationship with us. So Jesus becomes the way that it can happen. And therein lies the problem. For you see, the runaway in the story, he has a brother. Do you know that the second part of the story is, is nearly as long and robust as the first? All the attention gets the first part, right? That's what we like. We like the, the story of the father and of the prodigal. We love that story. Why can't it just end there? But it doesn't. Yeah, this would work so much better for us if we could just omit it, strike it out, allow this to be the ending. But no, it's the last part of Jesus' story that has teeth. It's the epilogue where the truth gets a little too close for comfort. Remember Paul's words to us? We are to do the work of reconciliation. I'm not crazy about the translation that, or the rendering that we are to do the ministry of reconciliation. That just makes it kind of sacred and set apart. That's work for somebody else to do. The work of reconciliation, however, I think gives us some sense of traction because the truth is, if the issue with reconciliation is just between us and God, we're clear. The story is sweet. The problem, however, is that the prodigal has family. And that's where it always gets messy, doesn't it? 
I mean, it's really pretty straightforward at this point. And we should, we should have seen this coming. But the runaway's older brother doesn't want him to be reconciled into the family. The older brother is seething. You know where the older brother was when all this was happening? I love this. He's working. Because of course he was. That's where the older brothers always are, right? The responsible ones. I bet you have some in your family. They're the ones that always stayed put. They were there. They were solid. He's working. And he hears a commotion. He goes down. He asks somebody, what's going on here? He says, your brother's home. And the older brother becomes red. Literally, Jesus has him saying, and he became angry and refused to go in. And his father, always on the move for reconciliation, discontent with dislocation, the father comes out to him and begs him, please, come in, join the party. The elder brother is ready for this moment. He says, listen, all these years I've been working for you like a slave, never disobeyed any of your commandments. You've never given me anything for it. And now... When this son of yours comes back, and this is when he starts dropping additional details. He's been hooking up with hookers and prostitutes. He's, he's destroyed all of the inheritance that you gave me and gave us and gave him. He's done all this, and he's come back, and this is what you do? What kind of a father are you? Father says to him, you've always been with me. And all that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. Your brother was dead to us. And now he's alive. He was once old. Now he's been made new. And this is how the story ends. Did he go inside after all? Or did he pout and resist being reconciled? I have some news for you, and it's probably going to be hard to hear. We, of course, are the older brothers in this story. And we, in our worst, are at odds with God's commandment to be his ambassadors. God has called us to remember the grace that he's extended to us and to do the work of reconciliation ourselves. What would that look like in this story? I mean, is it, is it possible for us to rewrite it? The prodigal runs away. He makes a mess of his life. But what if the brother, who sees the runaway's actions and, and what it's doing to the father, conspires to sneak away from the farm and go looking for his brother? And what if the older brother finds the prodigal in a pitiful state? His brother's hurting He's ashamed. He's filthy. He's undeserving of his older brother's attention. But as a representative of the father, the older brother knows that this moment isn't about the two of them. No, it's about the brother being reconciled to his father. So the older brother doesn't argue with him. He doesn't shame him. Instead, he helps to clean him up. He chooses to serve him. And then the older brother pleads with the younger brother to return because his father wants him back. The older brother doesn't tell him he doesn't have to 
to have the right words or even bargain with the father. The runaway just has to come home. Come home to his father. But the runaway doesn't even know how to come home at this point. So the brother guides him along the path. And when they get close enough so that the father could see him, the father runs out and embraces him. The elder brother heard this part of the story. He isn't center stage. This moment of reunion belongs to the runaway and to the father. And the older brother's okay with it. And in this rewritten version of this story, the father turns to the elder son and says, I'm proud of you. You did for me and our family precisely what I desire. You knew that this is what would make me happy for us all to be together again. This party is as much for you as it is for my brother, for your brother, And the older brother smiles and goes into the party. (laughs) Oh, y'all, I like this alternative version of the story much better than the one Jesus told. I wonder why Jesus didn't tell it this way. Where the older brother leaves home and works to reunite his brother with his father. Oh, wait. Yes, I do. It just wouldn't be true, would it? What a shame. God forgive us. We don't want reconciliation. Instead, God, we want justice and we want it in our own hands. And yet, God, in you... We have an undignified God that leaves the safety of the heavens and comes, dwells among us, and becomes sin so that we might have newness of life. God, I swear, if that doesn't change us, we don't know what will. So do what needs to happen for us to be changed so that we can be thankful for what you've done for us and in response become ambassadors for you, proclaiming your desire to be reconciled to the world. That's our prayer this morning, God. And we entrust it to you, our Father. Amen.